0: On the show today, I have William Wu. He's Portfolio Manager at Melior Investment Management. He teaches courses in sustainable investing at UNSW and he advises on boards of purpose-led businesses. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Will and I have had some great discussions in the past, and it was a pleasure to take it further today. We talked all about how you can have an impact when investing in public markets, how ESG is evolving, and the changing ways investors can influence the companies that are playing a growing part in our society. Now, Melior is only young, and they've just completed their first impact report, so it was useful to understand how they're starting out, where they hope to get to. And down the track, we can check in and get an update on progress. So let's dive in. For all the show notes and links, you can go to my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you'd like to help spread the word about the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It would be much appreciated. And someone else who's helping out spread the message is RIA. That's the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. They have over 300 members managing more than $9 trillion in assets globally. They do great work and they've come on board to help support a series of upcoming episodes featuring the leading name in Responsible Investing. Head to responsibleinvestment.org to find out all about it. All right, on with the show. Here's my conversation with William Wu. Here we go. All right, Will,
1: great to have you on the show. Hi John, thanks for having me on the show. And before I start, I actually like to extend my support for those in lockdown. Uh, it can be particularly challenging for many reasons, and one of them from a uh, mental health perspective. So please reach out to someone if you need to have a chat.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, we're really lucky up here in Sydney. We're getting back to a sense of normalcy, but other parts of the country aren't so lucky. So appreciate you extending that. But look, let's get into it because there's lots to talk about today. But I'd like to start by asking about your work teaching at university. Now, I know personally my mindset is completely different today than when I was studying economics many years ago. But I wonder if the way the subjects are being taught has changed and and how does social impact mesh with finance at uni these days?
1: I wrote the course, uh, co-authored it with uh, another University of New South lecturer called Kinsley Fong. Uh, This year was actually the first year for the course. It's actually two courses, so Sustainable and Responsible Investing, which is an undergraduate course, and Social Responsible Investing, which is a uh, postgraduate course. The genesis of the course actually goes back to the first principles. Often the economic theory we have learned does not include the role of ESG. The traditional investment approach builds on the neoclassical model of efficient markets and portfolio theory. So efficient market hypothesis assumes that all information is incorporated in the stock price suggesting passive investing while portfolio theory talks about financial returns and risk but does not include social and environmental issues in its equations. So now we're seeing this rise of the adaptive market hypothesis and ESG efficient frontier which is essentially including viewing assets with an ESG lens as well as traditional risk awards lens. So fundamentally speaking ESG is a risk, it is a non-financial risk that impacts the financial and therefore should logically be included in your traditional definition of risk, right? So the course introduces students to environmental, social and corporate governance consideration, methods that operationalize them into the investment process. We discuss a whole wide variety of factors such as climate change, water, waste, diversity, modern slavery, um, and also look at practical case studies. We do a deep dive into uh, the Royal Commission, for example, And also, slightly different to most courses, Um, there's actually no final exam. So, probably completely unheard of when I attended university and maybe when you attended university, and maybe why it's so popular. Instead, we actually have students design their own ESG framework to identify non financial risk and opportunities of the businesses and tie them to financials. So, how does it impact the profit and loss statement, cash flows and balance sheet, and ultimately the share price? And there's a Whole bunch of different examples that we can dive into if we want on, on that
0: yeah look it's a powerful movement and, and we often think you know in the world that you and i work in that a lot of this stuff is shifting and evolving and you know it hasn't overtaken mainstream finance yet it's still niche in some ways but esg is certainly um, you know everybody knows that term now and so it is heading that way but of course when we go back to university to have that foundational input right now I think that's really you know the generational shift that we need and so it is great to see that this is part of the curriculum now at university but do you feel it's still kind of an add-on or or has it become a core of the teaching of you know the finance fundamentals, sort of the physics of it
1: personally I would love for it to become core because you know I do it on a day-to-day basis and I've seen how you can improve my financial analysis of companies and we've seen so many examples where ESG issues impact management or board and therefore impacts the share price. But I think before it potentially becomes like really mainstream and part of the norm, um, we've got to understand where you know corporate ESG disclosure uh, is today and it's fairly inconsistent and inadequate. There's no real universal standard or common language for evaluating a company's ESG performance. Um, You know, there's several bodies have established factors, standards and guidelines, but they are voluntary and self-declared, which kind of creates severe data quality issues, um, hampering comparability across companies and sectors. And, you know, arguably, you know, having more factors, standards, guidelines in itself adds to the confusion amongst investors and companies on how and what data should be reported. Uh, You know, we have seen a few standards rising to the top, for example, you know, TCFD science-based targets, Global Reporting Initiative, SASB. But when we look at the data, you know, some of the surveys we have seen, you know, the finding that, you know, the complexity and the burden of ESG reporting on companies is highly ranked, and also incomparability comparability of company ESG data as well. So I fundamentally believe that as ESG standards and disclosures improve, they'll become more mainstream and adopted. And once they become standardised, uh, it will be really become the norm to include ESG analysis as part of conducting com- company analysis. Well,
0: that's it. That's that's a big part of what I want to talk about today is frameworks and how you guys use them. So, um, let's talk a bit about Melior. It started up a few years ago. Can you give us a uh, a quick rundown of of what it's all about?
1: So, Melior was established in 2018. Uh, it is an impact investment manager, and we do this by investing in companies that are having a positive impact and in influencing companies to do better. So we fundamentally believe that uh, capital markets have a central role to play in building a better, more sustainable future. And the way we do this is by investing in companies that align to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So we believe these purpose-driven companies that address long-term global trends, such as resource scarcity or climate change, will achieve a long-term outperformance. So by investing for companies for the longer term and engaging actively with management, we can influence companies to make positive changes to help deliver sustainable returns. We also look at these companies and how they operate and manage risk by looking at their ESG credentials. So companies with materially poor ESG credentials often have the potential for underperformance and are best avoided to in order to minimise risk. And finally, we have a valuation framework that helps identify high-quality companies with strong financials. So we're also taking into account of the financial risk. So in essence, we're investing in companies that do good, do it well, and are high in quality with strong financials.
0: Yeah, good to hear. And so, you know, you you talked about both ESG and impact there and sort of in terms of, you know, the terminology of our world, they're, they're very specific. How do you integrate the two? Do you use sort of ESG as a baseline and impact sort of depends on the data you can get? How do they mesh?
1: So the way our first framework we look at is kind of impact. And, you know, when you look at impact, traditionally data was actually quite difficult to come by. So intentionality and measurements historically, and in some cases are still just storytelling. However, now with the advent of say the SDGs or the work done by the impact management project, which provides a framework in which to measure and manage impact, it has helped to grow the impact investment sector so when we look at these companies from an impact perspective we are trying to align them their core businesses to the sdgs and there's been a couple of academic papers on this uh, in particular at Schmade in 2017 which looks at the potential financial upside in impact stocks so the paper discusses how impact stocks have the tailwind of the sdgs which should all else being equal have high growth rates high margins lower risk and lower capital So we are kind of looking at, you know, whether these companies are, you know, doing good. Once that passes, we really want to analyze how the company operates. So once they do good, how does the company operate? And that's when it comes down to looking at the ESG credentials of the company. So, you know, obviously there are some hurdles with ESG comparisons. So take, for example, you can't simply just take the company's word for diversity in its management because some companies measure female managing the workforce based on titles, another company may measure it uh, based on the number of staff reporting to the individual. So it really comes down to understanding the materiality, the fine print of how these companies measure ESG. And we believe that fundamentally, you know, companies with good ESG credentials are going to lower the risk of any non-financial risk to the company, right? So if we look at things, say, like I mentioned earlier, the injury rates or, you know, look at the corporate governance structure of the business, you know, we're taking that into account. We're taking that bottom half of the iceberg into account.
0: I mean SDGs is a framework but if, if you're going to use that to measure impact I'd imagine getting the data would be the real challenge and so you know I've often thought this when I've been investigating smaller companies they've sort of got their reporting but their sustainability reporting isn't great they haven't sort of released any of their own metrics based on how they feel they're making a positive contribution towards achieving the SDGs so how do you guys manage that do you look at them from an industry perspective and look at their outputs and then imply your own assessment of how they're impacting the SDGs or do you rely on on their own sort of estimations of that?
1: We make up our own mind because, you know, we're fundamentally both ESG and financial analysts. You know, there's quite a good framework out there by the impact management project. Um, They have a way to distinguish and help assess the impact of a company or project. They ask you to, you know, the what, the how much, the who, the contribution and the risk. For us, that's um, a really good framework to assess how a company is making a positive change to society or the environment. So we, we go through a number of questions that will look at what the core business is doing. You know, we look at the products it sells and we have a number of different ways to measure that. I think it's also really important to understand that the objective is not just to, what the company is doing, but also to understand what the company can do in its future. So, and one of the ways we do that is actually actively engaging with companies um, to create a more positive impact. So that kind of intentionality, um, you know, if it's often public equity impacts are frowned upon because, you know, you know, they think that impact has to be tangible in terms of building a wind farm or, or, or solar farm. But, you know, if a investor or a group of investors say positively advocate for a company to you know, commit to net zero or reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, You know that could translate to multiple you know, solar farms or wind farms. So I think that's kind of the way we defined impact. When you talk about impact, it has to include intentionality and be able to measure your advocacy work. So you really got to monitor and report your engagement with the companies and how they're tracking over time so when we talk to our clients not only are we talking about the quarterly performance numbers we also talk about um you know our you know our esg kpis and we also talk about the advocacy work um, that we've done with companies during that period
0: yeah good stuff and so what are some companies that you really like in terms of their impact um, on the sdgs you know i know that Every time I try and dig into it, some companies report it. Um, I'd love to understand how, you know, you guys take that sort of raw data of of their operations and and their outputs and turn that into their sort of, um, you know, their 17 goals and their contributions.
1: Let's take uh, Brambles as an example. So Brambles is a global provider of pallets. So if you have driven on the road and you've seen, uh, you know, a a truck with these wooden pallets on the back where you kind of stack goods upon uh, Brambles has got that famous blue uh, Brambles check palette; they call it. So when we look at that business, uh, we believe that, you know, by instead of using single-use pallets and throwing it away, by using these reusable pallets, it's contributing to responsible consumption, right? So we're not simply just creating a one-use asset, throwing it away away. Um, it goes to landfill. Um, you know, we're using these, you know, circular economy, good circular economy in terms of the pallets, they're reusable, and Brambles has a network of these pallets that they move to, um, you know, various retailers or warehouses. Um, so, you know, it's about you know how that circular economy works. We look at you know, it's it's you know how the global footprint, so how far that business extends around the globe, and you know, Brambles does a terrific job in reporting and tracking their sustainability. Uh, and they tell you basically by using these uh, you know, reusable pallets how much you are saving in whether it's wood or you know, um, any other materials that goes into that product. So that for us is a creating a positive impact on the environment, reducing waste, we're increasing the circular economy and that directly links to the SDGs for us from an impact perspective. So next we will then look at the ESG credentials of the business. All right. So that's kind of the second part of the framework.
0: And how do you then sort of differentiate, you know, your contribution to it as an investor? Because I wonder, Brambles is a, you know, it's a big listed company. It's been doing this for a long time. If you choose to invest, is that really sort of adding anything to helping them to make that impact or really sort of contributing more to, to achieving these, you know, the 2030 UN's goals? I guess that, that, you know, additionality, that sort of additionality issue.
1: Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. You know, I think that investors can be intentional because we are deliberately deploying capital to a more sustainable business. So investors are essentially re-adding capital from the unsustainable businesses to the sustainable businesses and effectively functioning as a more sustainable, efficient allocator of capital. I don't think that's any different to say in a financial sense where funds are deployed to businesses that generate the most returns and those that don't will simply cease over time. So my view is that by allocating capital to brambles, um, it helps their cost of capital and it ensures that those that, that aren't sustainable, like in a financial sense, will cease to exist over time
0: does it really influence that company? I mean, if, if you didn't invest, you know, it's a secondary market, you know, it's not sort of a capital raise. It's always going to be different to the private equity markets where you're, you know, supporting a company that might not have been able to, to raise money otherwise. But then, you know, we're in publicly listed markets. It really comes down to influence, right? And you talk about engagement. So I'd love to understand how that really, you know, can sway it. And, and I just wonder if, you know, if you weren't happy with, what the company was doing or, or they they changed you know their operations how much influence could you really have how much power do you have
1: yeah i think engagement with companies is is firstly really important um, you know companies do need help in developing the most useful and cost-effective disclosure practices you know what you don't want to end up with is a problem of high barriers to disclose so that means that you know you don't want the companies just with a very large ESG teams understanding what kind of practices are, you know, what are best practices. So the way that, you know, investors can help is by providing, uh, you know, insight to, you know, relative to perhaps to peers, to what's going on in the market, to help these companies improve their ESG practices. So the way they operate and the way they do business. And, you know, Austin is quite interesting that the companies who are really actively engaged uh, in this and this improvement, we've found that you know over time you know their share prices um, correlate to this improvement uh, positive correlation whereas companies who often ignore it and you know they focus on the profit and loss tends to you know as we've seen in a lot of recent examples have had a a number of issues um, non financial related issues so i think it's really important you know in terms of brambles for example You know, having a number of dialogues with them, with their ESG team, um, you know, going through the way they uh, manage, say, climate risk, the way they manage, you know, sustainability of the products. The raw input into their pallets is wood, uh, and they they use one hundred percent certified sustainable wood, um, and going through a number of this so helps to mitigate them uh, from any externalities, um, and you know, ensures that they have a you know, a social license to operate as we move into this new world.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, that's obviously that risk overlay of ESG, but I just, you know, wonder about the SDGs as an impact framework. I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, we're still sort of at this early stage where there's not a lot of consensus about which frameworks and and measurement methods to use and i just wonder if there were other investors like yourself also investing in brambles um, and they had a a um, sort of an external view of the sdg impact of brambles like perhaps you both have different perspectives and that it's then kind of um i guess who's taking into account sort of that impact or who's taking credit for it? And could they be very different impact measurements? Do you see that as sort of an issue?
1: Yeah, I think that goes back to the issues I mentioned in ESG comparability for one. There are a lot of guidelines. There is no real common language. And I think that is kind of similar to what we are seeing in impact investing. But I'll say with impact investing and why I think we're seeing this growth in Companies aligning to SDGs, investors aligning to the SDGs, because, you know, it is a common framework. It's a common set of goals that were adopted by all United Nation nation members in 2015. And, you know, it's one of the first few global frameworks with clear targets that we can all look at and hope to achieve. And, you know, it provides this common universal language that we don't often get. So whilst it may not be what everyone will, will use, it does provide a common framework that kind of allows us to compare different investments and different company goals in regards to the SDGs.
0: Yeah, but I guess we haven't quite got to that stage of that really um, you know, one for one comparability across portfolios. Um, you know, it's a problem with ESG. And I think with SDG impacts, it seems to be just as problematic. And um Yeah, and so I mean going forward like uh, you know you, you sort of have to work with the tools you've got i guess at the moment what would you hope these structures would be like in 10 or 20 years like what would be the tools or the frameworks or the norms i think the norms is probably the important part that you'd like to see that would make this all a lot easier
1: i would love to see and i get this question a lot from students as well when we ask them to create this esu framework that do come back and be like you know what is what is a common language because i see that loading financials the p and l the cash flow. And the balance sheet. So, what I would love to see, and this is just my personal view, I'll actually prefer to see a little bit more descriptive um, as opposed to prescriptive laws and regulations. So, you know, in accounting, we have, you know, IFRS. You know, I would love to have something similar to that in ESG and impact. So that way we get away from a lot of the misconceptions of different labeling or, you know, the issues of greenwashing. So, I mean, take one example, say fossil fuel free. I know there are a lot of funds out there that say they're fossil fuel free and there's a little bit of fine print because their definition of fossil fuel free is in regards to the percentage of revenues. Then there's also the issue of second derivatives. So what I mean by this is that some investment managers say they're fossil fuel free. However, they will invest in companies that provide services to fossil fuel free, such as uh, companies such as you know drilling or transportation or storage. So what I'd love to see is probably greater regulation, uh, a commonality of frameworks, and preferably global. So I would love to pick up the uh, sustainability report for the Australian company and compare that to a u.s company and be able to conduct a non-financial analysis and then we can go back to the companies and say hey you know company a you all your peers in your sector have a lower greenhouse gas emissions intensity right so w- what are you doing to mitigate uh, the challenges of say climate risk or you know your injury rates are higher because injury rates we know there's also a number of different ways to measure injury rates so that in itself is not incomparable to in many cases So I would love to say, you know, increasing regulation, I'd love to see, you know, greater commonality, you know, prescriptive framework, you know, globally as well. Um, And I think that would really advance ESG uh, to become so mainstream that it's just become synonymous with uh, financial analysis. You know, that I think
0: comes down to regulation to a certain extent. And this is something that we often don't talk about enough, I think, in impact investing. You know, we often have sort of the finance side and defining the frameworks, but then there's the corporate side. I think that's what you were talking about in terms of accounting standards and those sorts of things. So do you think that it will be more useful to have potential regulations and mandating rules? Do you think that would be better from the corporate side or sort of the finance side?
1: I think that would be a great idea for, for kind of from for both sides we come to agreement have a common understanding not just on what companies need to disclose but really need to go back to first principles and understand the methodology as well like what is the right methodology so you know in most other fields such as math or science the fundamental building blocks are there so one plus one is two And I often say in ESG, one plus one sometimes can be two, sometimes it's 2.5, sometimes it's three. You know, we don't even have a very globally accepted definition for, for example, for net zero. So some companies say net zero, it's scope one, two. Sometimes it's three, includes scope three. Sometimes it's a modified scope three. So again, you're going through this fine print. Sometimes the fine print doesn't exist. So it becomes really difficult for all stakeholders to essentially conduct that kind of comparative analysis, and my view is that you know what gets measured gets managed. So, whilst as uh, investors in public equities, we can have these dialogues with companies and we try to assist uh, as well to uh, remove the confusion and make it a kind of a low barrier to to disclose. Regulations can help accelerate that, but you know we're still going to do what we do, and we just can't you know wait for the regulation to come. So. In the meantime, uh, you know, there is a lot of global organizations who are looking to do this. And I hope that we can come up with a solution soon.
0: No, that's right. And, and I think, you know, scope three is a really good example because it's such a bugbear at the moment um, for people that don't. I mean, you know, my broad sort of explanation of it is that it's the emissions that a company releases, but it's what they're their customers release using their product. So it's often difficult for them to control directly, but obviously they they are sort of a stakeholder in that that element. And so, you know, we see this talked about a lot in some bigger strain companies, BHP and Rio, saying that they're now going to uh, try and control scope three emissions. And then Fortescue, who I think you guys are involved with, you know, they were saying it's 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 really difficult. And they were sort of discussing whether they think BHP and Rio can really do it. How, how do you see that issue
1: yeah so the way that i've always thought about scope one two and three is kind of one is impact on the business climate impact on the business and the other is you know the business impact on the climate so that's kind of the way i've always thought about scope one two and three emissions in terms of scope three emissions you know according to kind of to the science-based targets initiative it's considered material when they exceed 40 percent of the company's total emissions and that should be included as a company's mitigation strategy or if you look at the EU climate benchmark regulations, currently only consider scope three emissions as part of the mitigation assessment for oil and gas and mine industries, but there will be phasing in, this in for all industry over the next four years. So there is definitely this movement towards to not only uh, report, but to measure uh, scope three emissions. And I think, you know, climate change, you know, we could spend hours talking about it and it's particularly important, particularly when you look at, you know, CO2 emissions for uh, this year, despite COVID 19 and the shutdowns associated with it, I mean, the IEA is only estimating it to fall 8% year on year. So that just kind of shows how important um, we need to understand the challenges that's facing us in climate change and kind of the adjustments we need to make in the technology and consumer behavior to revert this trend
0: yeah definitely and and you talked about the younger generations and their their preferences and you know you're sort of on the ground and, and and you're plugged into their views and and these are the the young professionals of the future what sort of you know if there were some some young people some students or maybe some people working in finance that sort of want to work with more more purpose what opportunities what you know maybe advice would you give them about sectors or roles or yeah opportunities that that you see emerging in the future that, that they could head towards
1: the course despite uh, only starting this year have seen we've seen a really good diverse different students coming we've had people studying law we have people studying commerce uh, you know business and they're all really really engaged so that's you know first we really Interesting because you know I used to be at uni, did your county 101. Um, so I think there's a big difference in the engagement levels I'm seeing the students in the socially responsible investment classes. And I would say that you know, as ESG is becoming more mainstream, the opportunities are becoming wider and wider. So my advice to students is not to pigeon yourself into thinking that you know you can only do ESG or impact investing only in public equities. There are a number of different markets and sectors that you can use your toolkit of responsible to investing knowledge in there. So, you know, whether it's private equity, uh, we have talked about, um, you know, public equities, the credit market can also be, in, you know, startups are also looking at this area, you know, they're trying to tackle the big question marks, the grey rhinos or the black elephants in the room. So I would say don't pigeonhole yourself. What you're learning in the course can be applied to a number of areas and, you know, part of the course, I actually bring in a number of guest speakers to talk to the students, just to show them that you know you can be a person to say who focuses only on responsible investment or ESG analysis, and you can sell your research. So uh, we call that you know sell-side research. So you could do that as well. So there's a number of w- wide, different variety of sectors. It doesn't have to be public equities at all.
0: And I guess in that field, you've uh, you've read lots of books, and you've uh you've prescribed textbooks for your students but um are there any books that you'd recommend for my audience uh you know in this field or anything that you just really like at the moment
1: yeah so uh, i'm actually going to nominate a book called uh thinking fast and slow by Nobel prize winner daniel kahneman uh, i actually think it's a great book on how to make better decisions that can be applied in all aspects of life so it's a all-time classic and it presents you know one of the key ideas being this system 1 system two thinking so system one is this fast automatic thinking process it's very impulsive thinking Whereas system two is this slower more logical thinking so kind of both are important right if a car is coming at you you want to use system one over system two but if you've got a more complex problem let's just say you're trying to tackle climate change you might want to use system two over system one thing so the kind of the key message is that you know system one isn't bad you just got to understand when to apply system two thinking and even something as basic as replying via email potentially requires system two thinking as opposed to this quick impulsive system one thinking. And the book also talks about some other really uh, important topics, anchoring, loss aversion, framing, sunk cost fallacy. So I think it's a great book because it can be applied in any situation, whether it's ESG or financial analysis or just simply going about your everyday life.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good point. You know, we often have sort you of know, finance books recommended at the end of this podcast, but um, a book like that really is is broader than that. It's psychology, and that's such a big part of finance and, and and share trading is psychology. And we see that at the moment that there's so much of the market driven by by psychology and hype and momentum. So yeah, it it's a great book, really readable, and um, and pretty staggering research that they did and their sort of journey. So yeah, I second that one. It's great. Well, we'll, Will, let's leave it there for today. We've had plenty of great chats in the past and and I hope we can keep going with it in the future. Some really good insights there. It was great to see your first impact report um, from Melior, which is a great uh, milestone for you guys. And uh, all the best for it going forward.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on the show.